This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. So, as of yesterday, which was the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, it's finally summer. It's true we've already had a big heat wave, and a lot of us have already been to the beach for the weekend, and that the air conditioning is pretty much going wherever you go already. But now, it's official. So, as Americans, what do we do during the summer? Why, we get in a hot car with all of our family members and drive around looking at big outdoor stuff, a la National Lampoon's Vacation. It's friendly. I'm okay. I'm okay. Don't you want to look at the Grand Canyon? It's educational. Today on the show, we are, sadly, not going to see the Grand Canyon, or indeed, Wally World. But we are going to celebrate this first weekend of summer American style by driving around and looking at massive public art in historically significant locales. A little later on the show, the murals of Philadelphia's Mural Arts Project. But first, one American vacation cliche that we're all familiar with, going to see the Lincoln Memorial. I have actually never been to the Lincoln Memorial myself, although I did see the ape-influenced Lincoln Memorial in the 2001 version of Planet of the Apes. But author James Prococo has seen enough of it and other Lincoln memorials around the country to make up for all of us. For the last several summers, Prococo has visited about 20 of the almost 200 monuments around the country where Lincoln's memory is preserved. Prococo is a high school history teacher in Virginia, and he is the recent author of the book Summers with Lincoln, Looking for the Man in the Monuments. That's out now from Fordham University Press. I spoke to Prococo from his home in Springfield, Virginia, about what he's been doing on his summer vacations. My summer trips for the last uh, five summers was was basically to go around the country and be kind of a roving scholar looking at uh, monuments erected to the memory of, of Abraham Lincoln and sort of tease out from those monuments what they meant to me as a middle-aged 21st century guy and what they meant to the people when they were dedicated, uh, what the, the interpretation of the artist had to say about Abraham Lincoln, and then what do these monuments say to people today who I encountered at the different monuments. So it was a kind of a, a road trip with a specific uh, goal in mind, and that is to try to uh, analyze uh, Lincoln's life, not through a biography, but through what I call landscaping kind of work that sculptors and, and artists do. So where did you end up going? Much of my trip took me to the Midwest, where you will find most of the Lincoln monuments in the United States. But, you know, I was in Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, upstate New York, Vermont, here in Washington, D.C., Cincinnati, Ohio, Fort Wayne, Indiana, I didn't quite get to see the Lincoln statue in Hawaii. There is one uh, on a school campus in Hawaii, but I'm going this year as part of a non-Lincoln vacation to Hawaii, so I'm going to check that one out. I looked at about 40 monuments and decided upon seven of them to write about because they had the greatest paper trail in terms of documents in local libraries or historical societies, and because I felt that these seven were either the most artistically important statues or had some important story to say about Abraham Lincoln and Lincoln memory. How did you become interested in Lincoln monuments specifically? I was raised um, in the Catholic Church before uh, Vatican II, and at that time there were statues all over school and in the church. And I've always been drawn to figurative, what is sometimes referred to as academic sculpture, and um, Lincoln, um, 
basically because uh, you know I've grown over the years to to really respect and admire Abraham Lincoln. He's kind of become a totem in my classroom at school, and um, it just made sense given that next February we will be celebrating the 200th anniversary of his birth as part of the the Lincoln Bicentennial program. You weren't just sort of a tourist going around to the different monuments. You had these very specific rules and parameters. Tell me about that. What I specifically did was I limited myself to artists who were born in the 19th century, the same century that Lincoln was born in. I also limited myself to the years between 1870 and 1930, which is the great age of sort of Lincoln monuments where the the vast majority of these were put up. These monuments particularly addressed the various themes that you will find in Lincoln monuments, such as the great emancipator, the great statesman, Lincoln the youth, Lincoln the man of sorrows, and uh, Lincoln the commander-in-chief. And I wanted to try to address the various themes that artists have picked up on over the years about Lincoln. And these seven that I write about fit into that category, those categories. You were not going alone to all these monuments. Who did you bring with you? For much of the trip, I went by myself. But along the way, I before I would head out, I would call ahead and, and ask to talk to the local town historian and then set up an appointment with that person at the monument. Or I met with individuals known as Lincoln presenters who each year have a, an annual meeting about Abraham Lincoln, and I met them at one of the statues. I tracked down a kid from middle school in New Jersey who had gone dragged his parents out to Illinois to see some statue. I found his name in a in an Illinois newspaper, and he lived in New Jersey, and there were, was a statue in New Jersey I wanted to see. So I, when I couldn't bring students, because in some cases I actually brought students to monuments, I would find one. And that is what makes monuments dynamic, that you can talk and you can encounter them and you can engage with them, as I think the artists meant to happen. A lot of people find... Um monuments, historical monuments, to be kind of dry and boring. That's not the case with you. No, not at all. I mean, all of these monuments, even the ones that I didn't write about, all have a story. Uh, And those stories tell us, I think, as much about Lincoln as they do about us, because they tell us what the people who are erecting the monuments thought about Lincoln, which in turn is really a revelation about what they think of themselves. So I I think these monuments tell us, again, as I said, more about who we are than necessarily about the person completely that they're they're honoring. So as a historian, you're interested in them in terms of the way that people were thinking about this stuff when they built them. Yes, and I'm I'm also looking at because they're artwork, looking at them aesthetically, how they how they work, which means how do they fit into the space in which they're designed, and if there's an architectural arrangement, does that architectural arrangement uh, help the, the sculpture to tell its story? Does it does it help the viewer to engage and encounter the monument? And 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 also the memory, the the idea of public memory, and 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 what public memory means within the context of these Lincoln monuments. So you and your various students and colleagues that were with you at these at these monuments, what did you find looking at them? Well, what we find is that uh, each artist brings his particular interpretation of Lincoln's life to their work. We find that, like any 
anybody who's going to write a biography, um, I like to make the argument that you know a biographer gets hundreds of pages to tell his or her story about the subject, but that a sculptor gets one shot. The sculptor has to catch a moment in time. And so sculptors have to engage themselves in their subject matter. So all these artists that were were creating bronze or marble effigies of Abraham Lincoln had to do their homework. So why are these all these statues that are spread throughout the United States, why are they something that people should care about? You know, monuments are, are more than places for pigeons to perch. Part of what happens with sculpture, particularly outdoor sculpture, is that we don't venerate it because it's outside and it's subject to the climate, climate and weather and all those things. You know, you, uh, a sculptor has to be much more exacting, I think, than a painter because a painter is going to have his work hang in a museum or in a home, and it's always under the same kind of lighting conditions pretty much. A sculptor has to take into consideration the range of lighting possibilities. And I think people need to understand that, that many of these monuments, whether they're to Abraham Lincoln or to you know, Babe Ruth or uh, Eleanor Roosevelt or whoever they're to, were lovingly created by somebody and somebody who paid for it, that these are, are works of art which reflect the creative genius of the souls that took up the challenge to address, you know, in this case, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Martin Luther King Jr. And we react to those things. And I mean, we can, you know, there's certainly the, the, the controversy now that's going on here in Washington over the choice of sculptor for the memorial to Dr. King and sort of some of the issues that have come over to the, the posing of how the sculptor has chosen to pose King. I mean, you know, what, what cracks me up so much is that you read often that people don't care about their history in the United States. And I, I disagree with that. Uh, people care very much about their history particularly when it strikes a chord in them. And, and all of these monuments to somebody strikes or struck a chord at some time. What are you doing this summer? Uh, what I'm doing this summer is just sort of uh, enjoying having this book out. Uh, I've got a number of uh, speaking engagements tied to the book. Uh, my family and I are going to Hawaii for 10 days, and I am going to go check out the Avert Fairbank statue that's on the island of Oahu. Um, but uh, just sort of, this is sort of the first summer I've had off since I've been involved in this, and I just kind of want to sit back and enjoy, um, you know, having written this book and and having this book be part of uh, sort of the Lincoln literature, which which seemingly never ends. There's always something to be said. There's always something to be added, and I'm just delighted to to have played, you know, my part in in that story. Well, Jim Prococo, thanks so much, and have a fabulous summer. Thank you very much. It's been great talking with you. And you can learn more about Jim Prococo's summer activities at jamesprcoco.com. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we are taking an American-style summer vacation, and up next, we are going to Philadelphia. As well as being home to cheesesteaks, the Liberty Bell, and brotherly love, Philadelphia has, in recent years, become the site of more than 2,700 murals. Incredibly, the majority of these murals, which you can see under overpasses, on bridges and school walls, and generally all over the place in many of the city's neighborhoods, can be traced back to one organization, the Mural Arts Program. Since it started out as a component of Philadelphia's anti-graffiti efforts back in 1984, 
The mural arts program has been busily covering Philadelphia's naked walls with paintings, mosaics, and low-relief sculpture. Muralists produce them together with the people who live in the communities where the murals go up, and as such will have to, or get to, look at them every day. Mural Arts also works with juvenile offenders, prison inmates, victims of crime, and victim advocates in an effort to work on bettering social conditions in Philadelphia. There are, of course, many murals in Philadelphia that aren't made by the Mural Arts program. Many of them just spring up overnight. But the program's murals are the ones that really interested my tour guide. Maureen O'Connell is an assistant professor of theology at Fordham, and for the last several years she's been studying the murals of her home city, particularly the ones that have faith as a theme and those that decorate places of worship. I met Maureen O'Connell for a tour of some of her favorite murals. In true vacation road trip tradition, we drove the city's neighborhoods in her mom's minivan, which thankfully was air-conditioned. We started in West Philadelphia. We're in the Mantua section. We're at 34th and Haverford. Mantua is one of the neighborhoods in West Philadelphia. And the Mantua section is a really economically depressed area of the city. We're stopped in front of the Gateway to Heaven Pentecostal Church. And they have this fabulous wall that opens up on a big kind of empty lot here. And the mural arts program approached um, the pastor, Reverend Smith, who I have had a chance to talk to. This pastor was at first a little bit hesitant about that because um, he's working very hard to have his little church here have a really positive presence in the neighborhood. So he really wanted the message on the mural to be consistent with sort of the work, the outreach work, the public work that the church is doing. Okay, so... um, This mural is called Songs of Hope. Basically, Songs of Hope is um, at least a three-story mural, and um, the center focus is a young African-American boy. He's wearing a long, white sort of, I guess almost like a basketball jersey that kind of reaches down below, just above his knees. He's sort of gazing up and forward. And in the background, kind of in muted blues and greens, are different young people doing different activities. One kind of in the in the background is a young boy who's singing. Um, and again, that ties into the, the theme of the mural Songs of Hope. And in fact, the pastor who just pulled up, and maybe we can talk with him really quickly, kind of said, this boy is not, he's singing, but he's not singing for entertainment purposes. He's singing about something. He's singing probably some of the different songs that have really shaped the African-American experience. And then, you know, you've got other children who are doing other activities and muted in a lot of different ways. But this boy in the center is really kind of in clear focus. And he's really kind of seen as moving forward, looking ahead, gazing at something and kind of being drawn to it. I'm uh, Pastor Carnell Smith, and I pastor the Gate to Heaven Ministry. Most of the young people today, the youth in this city, don't have positive role models and you know, when this is all you see is ghetto, you know, then that's the type of mentality you're going to have, a ghetto mentality. It's basically a mirror of hope where a young man is like coming out of, you know, out of the world and entering into life and, you know, successfully made it without, you know, losing his life or getting locked up in prison or whatever, but has a goal and a vision in mind. Okay, so now we're going up Market Street, and we're going to hang a right, I think, on 40th and head down into 
another section of West Philadelphia, the Woodlawn section. Um, a lot of these murals are predominantly in three, I guess in three main, well, four main areas. You have several that are in sort of the, the center city district of the city, in the historical district. A lot of them are in North Philadelphia, which is, you know, largely an economic de- economically depressed area. Um, and then the, some other murals are over here in West Philadelphia. Um, and the University of Pennsylvania has had a really positive influence over here. So some of these neighborhoods are, um, are really quite integrated and economically viable and, and really neat communities. And then some of them are also in South Philadelphia that has a much more, or at least historically is kind of known as sort of the Italian um, neighborhood of or area of Philadelphia, um, you know, of rocky fame. They're kind of these different pockets of the city where the murals really tend to be. And um, they each, they all kind of have a different, a different flavor. I've kind of been noticing, I think, a real distinction between murals that come out of these neighborhoods and those that are sort of in the historical district, um, and even those that are connected, say, with churches, Italian churches, traditionally Italian churches in the city, and some of those like the one that we just saw um, with um, the Song of Hope over in Mantua. Certainly one of the biggest issues in the city, and this is kind of an aside but an important point, is violence. The city is really wrestling with a, a tremendous spike in gun violence. You see a lot of murals, and particularly this one that we're now coming up on, dealing with issues of violence. This mural is called Families Are Victims Too, and it's a really neat mural because it kind of grew out of a neighborhood sort of support group. It was really initiated by this woman named Sandy Spicer who sort of started um, a support group among uh, neighbors for people who, families who had lost um, loved ones or children or uncles or nephews, cousins to street violence. And she approached the mural arts program about wanting to, to do something. And so the mural arts program connected her with a muralist named Barbara Smolin and I've I've spoken with Barbara and she talked to me about how difficult this mural really was um it spans it's sort of it 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 wraps down and around to a corner so each component is about 70 feet long and in meeting with the neighbors about what they what they really wanted um Barbara kind of she had to have several meetings and she said that they were really emotionally exhausting because, you know, these are people who were telling her the stories of their family members, their loved ones, trying to come up with the image that she thought would be right. And they really wanted this mural, um, not to really, not necessarily to make a statement about, um, gun violence, but really to be a memorial. So actually, if you notice along the, along the fence, cause this wraps around a bus terminal actually, there are, I guess, sort of commemorative um, decorations. These are, it looks like, some crucifixes, some Easter wreaths that people would normally take to a gravesite. And apparently people come here rather than go to the place where their loved one is buried or interned. This is where they come to sort of remember them. So along the length of the wall, you'll notice that there are these small portraits with the names of of different people in the in the community with their with their dates. And they wrap all the way around. So the mural kind of starts with this kind of stark, dark landscape down the one side of the block and kind of culminates in this really fascinating 
piece I want to show you or this image that I want to show you that Barbara really wrestled with. Interestingly, Barbara is, um, is Jewish. And one of the images that came to her boat she wasn't sure was appropriate for her to use is sort of the image of the Pieta, you know, of Mary holding Jesus after he's taken off the, off the cross. And, but that was really, that was the emotion, that was the image that really kind of resonated with her based on these conversations that she had. So the one image at the kind of culminating on the one side of the mural is really a pieta. You know, you have a, it looks like a parent, a father kind of with his arm on the mother. The mother is kind of holding, wailing, kind of her head raised in anguish. Another hand on a child who's definitely um, looks as though he's been slain. He's sort of draped um, in a way that I think is very reminiscent of the pieta, Michelangelo's pieta, you know, in a red cloth or garment. And then you sort of have this this angel looking down on them. So it seems like it's sort of the one of the culminating images that she used in trying to capture the grief and the feeling and the emotion of these families who have lost their loved ones. At first for her, she wanted to make this mural some sort of statement to make it have it have it have a bit more of a political statement about violence because that was her own reaction to this. Um, and the families kind of said, no, this is not what it's about for us. For us, it's about, it's about remembering, it's about um, honoring and moving on. I think this picture right here of this angel is really fascinating. There's sort of these roses that are falling down, but notice the, the cityscape sort of in the backdrop, which I think is kind of neat and situating this image. Um, this is not an angel who's sort of ephemeral and distant, but sort of imminent and present. Um, so you can see sort of the, the colors here just slowly get brighter. Um, in this place, our healing resounds loud and wide for all to see and remember. Um, so it's really a very, a very touching and really beautiful with these gorgeous purple flowers and blue flowers. Um, and, the, and the images of these different folks. I mean, you can see somebody here was just added... Michael Mitchell, you know, added in 2004. So, you know, it's, it's a living memorial in that regard, too. So, um, I just find, I just find it, I just find it fascinating, um, that this kind of grew out of a community self-expression. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. But first, let's hear the rest of my tour with Maureen O'Connell. O'Connell's an assistant professor of theology at Fordham, and she's studying Philadelphia's community murals from a faith perspective. Let's get back to it. So we are at 13th and Washington in South Philadelphia, and we're in a really interesting neighborhood that is a Vietnamese neighborhood that also bumps right up into a Mexican neighborhood. And we are at the Bode Buddhist Temple. At the dedication for this mural, the city councilman, who is Italian, said that this used to sort of be like a, an Italian-American kind of like card club place. So it's interesting how the neighborhoods have kind of changed. But anyway, the mural is called Journey from Vietnam to the U.S. And it is, it's a really big, it's probably a three-story mural. Again, a really large mural painted in really bright colors, yellows, pinks, oranges, golds. And on either side, on the left and the right-hand side, far left and right-hand side, are 10 different sort of 
I don't know, just little depictions of different values, both of Buddhism and also Vietnamese culture. So you have ideas of wisdom, family, tradition, courage, love, homeland. Sort of moving in towards the center, you have depictions of two dragons, which are obviously really culturally rich icons. And beneath the dragons are are two... um, I guess a poem. On one side, it's written in English. On the other side, in Vietnamese, sort of about a family commitments in the context of storm, which makes a lot of sense given the central image in the center of the mural, which is really what came out of meetings with this community, what they wanted to be on this mural, which is um, an image of a boat crossing, fleeing from Vietnam, crossing an open body of water. And the muralist, Shira Walensky, who worked on this, who I've met with, said that this took a lot of time, that the community was very particular about how they wanted the water to look, what they wanted the boat to look like, the color of the boat, the type of wood, the way the sky would appear. So clearly this image comes from the experience of people in this community sort of fleeing from their homeland to a new place. The ironic thing that Shira also mentioned to me, which is, again, one of the things that I think is so rich about the murals, is that um, I guess the the temple shares a parking lot with a -a Save-A-Lot grocery store, and so there would be a lot of foot traffic when she was working on this with her students last summer. And um, lots of different folks from the Mexican community here coming by were kind of talking about the immigrant experience and how this how this mural kind of evokes ideas of the immigrant experience for them. Um, so it's really kind of a fascinating piece. And then all the way over to the left on a smaller wall um, are a whole series of, it's like a mosaic that's of tiles. And the mural arts program ran several community days here at the temple where people could come in from all over the community and um, do their own little kind of um, mosaic kind of tile of, you know, the values that are connected to this um, to this mural. So they're all over on the left. And at the community dedication day, it was really fascinating because you could see lots of people coming up and sort of identifying their own contribution to the mural. The center, the center for, or this Islamic center that we're going, Alaska, has been there for 40 years in a furniture warehouse over in the really sort of North Kensington section of the city, and I'll kind of give you, we'll see, you'll see it as we drive in. You're going to see some interesting things. So after 9-11, they, they, they were very concerned. You know, the police commissioner and, you know, his second in command were, you know, kind of stationed themselves after 9-11 at the mosque, really concerned that there would be anti-Muslim sentiment and that the, you know, that there might be some violence at the mosque. Unfortunately, there wasn't. And in fact, a lot of people in that immediate community really reached out. So you can see the mosque. I've tried to take a picture of this myself and capture, and it just doesn't work well. But, like, here, here's the mosque. Then you've got this abandoned, you know, 1906 is the keystone on the top of this, um, you know, small little factory, some kind of manufacturing plant. Or, and then in the background, you know, the spire of this big old big old church. In addition to painting the mural, you know, painting the building using really beautiful geometric um, patterns and symbols and colors, the the building is also decorated with these hand-rolled tiles that people within the community did. And then they opened their doors to the wider community there in that neighborhood. And then they had, I don't know how many community days, you know, where people came after work or people came on Saturdays kids from a Christian LaSallean school 
students and congregants from a synagogue out in the suburbs came in, all worked on these tiles that decorate the entire building. And then along the side is an actual, you know, a, a more traditional mural called Doorways to Peace that um, was done with people in the wider community about the different virtues that are connected to peace. So it, I don't know, it's just such a tremendous story about the ways that people can engage one another um, precisely from their orientation or their identification in a religious tradition and not in spite of it, you know, and come up with this beautiful collaborative process. It's really transformed that immediate community. It's transformed the people in the mosque and um, has really launched them into a very public and, and constructive rather than reactionary kind of participant in the community. Uh, my name is Joe Brenman, and um, I'm one of the artists that worked on the mural at the Al-Aqsa uh, Islamic Society. That's a really important thing was to show that there was a large Islamic community here in the neighborhood and that they were, you know, proud of, of what they do and that and that there's a lot of beauty to to what they they have here. And that was so that was one of our goals was to reflect that beauty. The way it, it shines in the afternoon, it's really bright and shiny in the afternoon, it just like kinda of glows and looks really kind of magical. For me, being Jewish and working on this was a really powerful experience. So that was a really big part of this project and I got a lot out of it, like the feeling of brotherhood with uh, the people here at the mosque and in the neighborhood. It just brought out, out really great, you know, really strong feelings of brotherhood. You can learn more about the Mural Arts program and look at pictures of many of their murals at muralarts.org. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a great first weekend of summer.